Welcome, Welcome to your online coffee break, where we discuss bite-sized topics that inspire, educate, and entertain. Here's your host, a software innovator, award-winning marketer, and astronomy and space buff, Chuck Fields. Hello, thanks for joining me today for your online coffee break. Well, folks, we went straight to the top on this one. It's my pleasure to introduce our special guest, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. You cannot go any higher in NASA than this guy. And we were so pleased to actually go to Washington, D.C. to sit down with him at NASA headquarters and have a fantastic discussion. But before we get to his interview, I want to uh, introduce our guest for your space journey. Again, this is where we encourage you to call in or send us an audio video clip telling us your space story. What fascinates you about space and what you're most excited about for the future of space exploration. And for today's episode, it's my pleasure to introduce photographer extraordinaire, my friend, Francis Murphy. Hi, my name is Francis Murphy, and my space journey began probably my earliest memory was around eight years old. And um, I don't remember the Apollo uh, moon landing, but I do remember Apollo 17 and watching it with my parents on TV. I have uh, recollections of uh, Skylab. But what got me started was the purchase. My parents made of a telescope. It was a Sears 60-millimeter refractor, and that really set me on the course. Uh, I remember <laughs> giving little star parties in my backyard with that, probably around 10 or 11, and bringing people over. And I had no idea what I was doing. I'm sure I was not polar-aligned, and <laughs> I had things probably all cattywampus, but I still made the effort and went out and was trying to share that. And that's a passion that sort of stayed with me. I'm incredulous that we're honestly talking about going back to the moon. It's hard to believe. When I was up at Nice last year, they were talking about the designing of the spacesuits and how they were going to have to, you know, sort of start from the ground up again for the moon. But that was already in production. And then it really started to sink in that we're actually going to be going back. Um, space exploration, I think, really does need to happen. And I'm excited to be still around to, to witness it again. Your space journey. Thanks, Fran, for sharing your story. And again, folks, we would love to hear from you. If you want to share about how your passion for space began, just give us a call. Leave us a voicemail. You can call us at 317-862-4700. Or if you'd like to email us an audio or video clip, just send that email to info at yourspacejourney.com. Again, folks, we'd really love to hear from you. And we could also really use your support. If you can share this episode with a friend, we'd really appreciate it. And if you haven't done so already, if you can rate us on whatever podcast application you're listening to right now, or if you're watching YouTube, if you can subscribe, it's free, or give us a thumbs up, we'd love that. If you can give us a nice comment, we would appreciate that as well. Again, we do appreciate you taking time to join us. Really do appreciate it. Now on to our interview with NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. Again, his title is the equivalent of CEO for NASA. He is at the top. So he's got some incredible responsibilities. And during this interview, we'll talk about his history, how he went from being a pilot through the House of Representatives, and then just a couple years ago, becoming the NASA Administrator. We also talk about some really exciting things that he's looking forward to, including the possibilities of finding life on Mars, and how he feels about Pluto becoming the ninth planet once again, if that all goes well. Anyway, here's the interview with Jim Bridenstine. Online Coffee Break. 
Jim, thank you so much for joining me. I really yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that we love to talk to about our guests is their space journey. Yeah. But I understand yours is more of an aviator enthusiast interest. Yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. So I grew up um, wanting to be a pilot my whole life. Um, and uh, when I was in first grade, my, uh, my first grade class, we had to draw a picture of what we wanted to be when we grew up. I drew a picture of an airplane. I had myself next to it. I said, I want to be a pilot. And I spelled pilot P-I-E-L. <laughs> EOT. I was first grader, of course, mm -hmm. um, and that was that was what I drew. Now, um, as I went through my life, I, I you know I went to college at Rice University. I studied economics and business. Um, I had a third major of psychology, and I was interviewing to be an investment banker, consulting, right. you know, those kind of business-related activities. And um, as I was going through the process, none of those things interested me. Um, so I, I decided I still wanted to be a pilot. Like, that's what I've always wanted to do. So um, I looked at the Air Force. I looked at the Navy. I decided I wanted to do ca carrier aviation. Very nice. I wanted to take off and land on carriers. So I, I joined the Navy, became a Navy pilot. I did that for nine years. Yeah, let me talk to you about that. Because yeah. in the Navy, you flew the E-2C. E-2 Hawkeye. Yep. And that was more, um, I guess, tactical missions. Yeah. Aircraft carrier, 303 three landings on aircraft here. I could not even imagine what that's like. Yeah. We also flew combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes. Can you tell us more about those? Things? Yeah, so I was flying the E-2 Hawkeye off an aircraft carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln, mm -hmm. and, um, and our job in the Hawkeye is command and control. Right. So we would take off the carrier, um, and we would have, of course, assets at our disposal that were in, in the air, airborne assets, uh, fighter jets. Nice. Um, and we were, we were doing what we called airborne battlefield command and control. So talking to the troops on the ground, they're, they're making progress. Maybe it's going towards Baghdad. Maybe they're, um, taking a certain specific target, um, and they're coming up against the enemy. Um, and so we have to make, uh, decisions as to what are they up against. Um, and we have a lot of troops on the ground in a lot of different locations and we have to get the right weapon on the right target at the right time. Um, to protect the troops on the ground as they continue to advance on their targets. Um, and so we, we find the right plane airborne with the right weapon system, the right guidance system. If it's cloudy, you don't want to use a laser-guided weapon. You want to use a GPS-guided weapon. That makes sense. Um, we manage the tanker plan, uh, the fuel states of the aircraft that are airborne. And ultimately, um, we, we get our, our assets to, um, to a position where they can support you know, the troops on the ground. And... Uh, that's, that's what we did in, in the wars in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. Um, now, I understand after that, um, you ended up transitioning to the F-18 Hornet. I did. And helped out with the Top Gun instructors. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, I had the opportunity. They were looking for somebody that could uh, teach Airborne Battlefield Command Control um, at what we call the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center at the mm -hmm. time, um, which is the parent command to Top Gun. Wow. Um, so they wanted me to teach in the classroom, and I was interested in doing that, but they didn't have E-2 Hawkeyes there. So I was, um, I was very clear with my commanding officer that uh, I didn't want to do that. I don't want to move to Fallon, Nevada, unless there's a reason. I want to be able to fly. I mean, that's what it came down to. I wanted right. to. And he, he said he would look into getting me a transition to the F-18 Hornet, um, and he was able to get that for me. So I did. I transitioned to the Hornet. Um, and my job there was I flew Red Air right. uh, for Top Gun instructors that were transitioning from the F-18 to the F-16 
um, and my job was to be a target. <laughs> so um, I was red air, which which means uh, my job was to fly mission profiles uh, similar to what the enemy would fly, and then get shot down and and then fly home bravely. <laughs> so um, so but when you get shot down, uh, you get to fly home uh, at right. at faster than Mach and lower than five hundred feet. Really? So. I wasn't always terribly disappointed when I got that shot. That sounds like an incredible yeah. experience. Now, I understand, and thank you for your service, by the way, of course. Um, after the Navy, you transitioned eventually to become the executive director of the Tulsa Air and Space Museum and yes. Planetarium. Yes. What made you decide to go that route? So, um, uh, it's kind of a long story. My, um, my wife's father had passed away, and her mother had multiple sclerosis, um, and... She had family in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We needed to move back to Tulsa. Yes. So when we left the Navy, we tried to put together a plan to move back to Tulsa. Mm -hmm. um, and I got a job running a nonprofit air and space museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and I'll tell you, I loved it. It was, um, it was, it, it was inspiring, the history. Um, and of course, the kids, the mm -hmm. future, um, all there in one spot. And it was kind of like... Uh, it was just a, a great place to be. So I, I did that for a couple of years um, and then uh, ran for Congress. You know, I was never really anticipating, you know, a, a position <laughs> in an administration. Right. Um, President Trump got elected uh, and he, he went and he talked to senators and he talked to um, industry and pe he asked people who they thought would be a good NASA administrator, I guess. Um, and I know my name came up on a number of different occasions, um, and I got I got asked to, to interview. So um, that is incredible. It is kind of. <laughs> it all seemed to happen so fast, yeah. and that's what's amazing because it's only been a year and a half, I believe. Yeah. And um, here we are at NASA. Yeah. Over more than seventeen thousand employees. Yeah. You've got sixty nine active missions right now. Yeah. Your Artemis plans to get yeah. back to the moon. Yeah. Lots lots of moving parts. Yeah. What's the most difficult thing about running NASA? Well, I think um, it's a very political position. Um, it is absolutely true that NASA is not partisan. Mm -hmm. It's not, but but it is. It's parochial in nature. There's a lot of special interests. Um, there are people that have, you know, they they want funding to this area or funding to that area. Sure. When you have a twenty-one billion dollar budget. Members of Congress and senators want they want access to that for their districts. So I spend a lot of time trying to make sure people understand why we're doing what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish, how it's good for the nation, um, and then also working with members of Congress and senators, working with the Office of Management and Budget in the executive branch, working with the National Space Council in the executive branch, working um, with the Vice President's Office. He's the chairman of the National Space Council. Right. So um, all of these things um, take a lot of time, but but it, but there a lot of it is it's a lot of political kind of activities that aren't partisan, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, it's it's perfectly predictable, it's perfectly understandable. Um, but my goal has been to run NASA in an apolitical, bipartisan way as much as possible, so that all of America can get behind what we're doing. And see, I think you do that in a fantastic way because your enthusiasm really comes through. What excites you the most about all these incredible missions out there? Yeah. Is there anything that just you just 
I was just so excited. I think there's two things. Number one, I'm the first NASA administrator that doesn't have a memory of where he or she was when we had people living on the moon. Um, True. I wasn't alive when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. I wasn't alive yet when Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt left the moon in 1972. Mm -hmm. So... Um, we are now at a point, and I'm 44 years old, we're at a point now where there's an entire generation of people that don't have a memory of it because we weren't alive yet. Right. And so the president has said we need to go back to the moon sustainably, and we want a program that's not going to end. Um, we want generations from now, people to look back on this moment and say, we were doing the right things for the right reasons for generations to come. Mm -hmm. Now the moon is the proving ground, so I think that's one thing. We have to do those stunning things where, where people get enthusiastic about space exploration again. Right. Going to the moon is one of those stunning things. Sure. But it is also true that the moon is the proving ground. It is not the destination. We need to use the moon to learn how to sustain life on another world for long periods of time. How do we use the resources of the moon to live and work? Hundreds of millions of tons of water ice on the south pole of the moon. That's life support. It's wow. air to breathe. It's water to drink. It's hydrogen, which is rocket fuel, same rocket fuel that powered the space shuttles. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of millions of tons of hydrogen on the south pole of the moon. How do we get access to it? How do we use it? How do we convert it into something that is usable? So those are the things that we need to learn right now today. We need to build an architecture that's sustainable for the long term, driving down cost, increasing access, and then ultimately bringing in commercial partners and international partners so that um, we can all do more and have right. more access than ever before. Then finally, remember what the destination is. The moon is the proving ground. The destination is Mars. Right. What we architect at the moon has to, as much as possible, be replicable at Mars. And, and that's what we need to be striving for every day. The question then becomes, well, why do you need to go to Mars? Well, I'll tell you why. We have found, and since the time I've been the NASA administrator, we have found complex organic compounds on Mars, mm -hmm. which are the building blocks for life. They don't exist on the moon at all. None. But right. they're all over Mars. And, of course, they're all over the Earth because we have a lot of life here on the yes. Earth. Um, I'm not saying there's life on Mars. I don't know. But we should go find out. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that the methane cycles on Mars are commensurate with the seasons of Mars. So the probability of finding life is going up. The plumes of methane that we find coming out of Mars mm -hmm. are at the level where people are saying it's, it, it, it may not be likely that that's geological in nature. In other words, the probability of finding life keeps going up. Third, we have found liquid water 12 kilometers under the surface of Mars. Right. Liquid water. What do we know right. about liquid water on Earth? Wherever there's liquid water on Earth, there's life. Mm -hmm. Is that true on Mars? We don't know. But it's 12 kilometers under the surface where it's protected from the radiation of deep space. So we need to go find life on another world. And I think if, and, and I'm not saying it's there, I don't know, but we should go find out. And if we find life on another world, I think it's just going to transform how, how we think about space exploration. Absolutely. There's going to be so much thirst and so much desire to find out what else is out there. The moon of, of, of Jupiter, Europa, it's a, it's, a, it's a moon the size of our moon, except it's pure water. It's all water. Incredible. It's got an ice shell. We're now finding mass plumes of liquid water being you know, spewed out of the ice shell of Europa. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing a mission to Titan, which is a, a, a moon of Saturn, and it's covered in organic compounds. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to fly a helicopter on Titan. In fact, 
um, in 2021, we're going to fly a helicopter on Mars. Right. For the first time, we're going to be <laughs> flying a helicopter on another world. Incredible. So there's, like you mentioned, there's a lot of missions going on. There's a lot of activities. There's a lot of excitement. One thing you, you were mentioning, other worlds, and one thing that I, I'm really impressed with, just to close, is Pluto. Yeah. I love how you uh, yeah. you, you said Pluto is the ninth planet. Yeah. It, well, <laughs> it's, more that. yeah. Pluto has been abused by scientists now for years. Right. And um, we, we, in my view, um, it was downgraded in 2006 based on the definition of orbit clearing. Right. So as it goes around the sun, does it clear the area around its own orbit? Um, and I think that's a really sloppy definition because by that definition, none of the planets are planets. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, here's, here's what we found out in 2015 with the new horizons mission. Incredible. So Pluto was downgraded in 2006 in 2015. We found out that Pluto has its own ocean under the surface, mm -hmm. a liquid ocean. We found out that Pluto has organic compounds on its surface, the building blocks for life. Pluto has a multi-layer atmosphere. Pluto has an active geology. Pluto has five moons. Um, a, lot, a lot of these things we discovered, you know, in 2015. Right. So in my view, that is not basically a dead rock going around the sun. That is a, that is a planet that is very interesting. And I think, in my view, um, planets should be defined based on their intrinsic values not what orbit they have around the sun, because that orbit, by the way, is always changing. And right. planets are always changing orbits. It's just the way it is. So to basically, you're going to have planets become planets, planets get downgraded. Plan so we need to have, in my view, pl planetary bodies need to be defined based on their intrinsic values, and quite frankly, their interest from a scientific perspective. And I will tell you, there is not there are not many planets more interesting than Pluto. Right. And we did not know that until 2015. So I think we ought to be really focused on it. That's fantastic. Well, definitely exciting times, Jim. I want to congratulate you and your incredible team for all the wonderful discoveries we've seen so far. We cannot wait to see what's next. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Online Coffee Break. Wow, I really enjoyed speaking with Jim. And of course, going to NASA headquarters was a real treat. If you'd like to find out more about NASA, just go to their website at nasa.gov. I want to thank Jim for inviting us out to NASA headquarters. I want to thank you for taking time today to join us. We really do appreciate it. Again, if you can share this episode with a friend, we'd love that. If you can rate us on your favorite podcast application, give us a thumbs up. If you're watching YouTube, we'd appreciate that as well. But either way, just thank you so much for taking time and joining us today. We'll see you next time. God bless.